Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode, I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion. You can comment on the live stream, and we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right. I'm very excited for my guest today. That's okay. Well, I always say that I'm excited because I'm always excited for every guest that I have because I love (laughs) (laughs) that's the truth. Uh, But this is the first time I've actually had, uh, I think, an author or a writer on on this show here. And we're talking about a a subject that I really feel is kind of near and dear to my own heart. And the the subject is going to be grief. Why we're talking about this is because of Emily's own kind of remarkable story of resilience and courage in the face of, of significant grief and loss, but also because I think that in this part of the world, I think in Western culture, we don't do so well with grief. And, and, and I see the spillover and the effects of kind of the work that I do in the realm of sort of weight loss and, and creating transformation for people. Um, and so I'm really excited to dive in uh, with, with Emily here. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I always like to start out with a random question from my deck of 150 cards here. Um, there's actually six sections here, so um, we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get a random question for you. But if you could choose a number between one and six, mm, one. You need to go with one. All right. So you've you've chosen the category of education. Uh, what do people say that you can't do? I hear people say all the time that you can't be happy while you're grieving. And I'm kind of on a campaign to show them that you really can. Wow. That's, that's actually quite, quite remarkable. And I'm glad that we got that question. Now, speaking about grief, um, do you, do you feel that people feel would feel guilty? A lot of people are, they struggle with the idea of being happy while experiencing grief. Oh, yeah, they do. That That's why we have to talk about it, because people think that they're somehow betraying whoever it was who died. And that's just not true. And you have to look for the, the truth, the real truth and whatever it is that you're saying or dealing with, because we tell ourselves a lot of stories. And when we can weed out the stories and see what's really true in there, then then you can deal with your life and, and be able to um, take a deep breath and be able to move forward. So you say that we, we tell ourselves a lot of stories. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, I'll never be happy again. I'll never get married again. Um, I'll, I'll never be able to look at a, a baby without crying. All, all kinds of things. You, we kind of make things up. And so, yeah, does it, does it feel like we're, we're, uh, we're telling ourselves these stories because we're kind of trying to make sense of what we're presently feeling? And, and there's maybe this fear that this feeling will continue indefinitely? I think you have the key word there, fear. I think a lot of the stories come from fear. And a lot of people hang on to fear because that's kind of what they're used to. We have a lot of fear in society. And as long as you're, you're fearing, you can't really be happy. You've got to let go of that fear to be able to do that. I think you said something quite profound there that as long as we're, we're fearing or as long as we're filled with fear, that it's impossible to, to really truly be happy because fear and happiness re- probably re- really can't coexist. So we have, we have a world, I think, especially like with our modern digital world and, and, and our access to 24 seven media and the understanding, of, you know, there's enough understanding of human psychology that fear tends to keep eyeballs on screens um, and, and that's, that's the world that we find ourselves living in. How do you, how do you get around? And our primal brain is, I think, constantly looking for things to be afraid of or looking for threats because of it. It's wanting to keep us safe. So in a world where it would appear that there's many, many things to be, you know, we could basically constantly fill ourselves with fear. How do you navigate that world? Well, the best thing to do is to choose not to put yourself in the situation where that's, that's going to trigger you. 
for instance, if you watch uh, the news shows all day long, you can be triggered every five minutes <laughs> on something. Oh, no, that's going to happen, or that'll happen to me, or that'll happen to my family. And that that's fear you don't need to deal with because it might be something that's happening with whoever it is that's on the air, but that doesn't mean it has anything to do with you. So if, right. if you like watch uh, positive things on television, if you're going to watch television or if you're going to read books, uh, read the books that don't have the things in them that frighten you, but, but uplift you and let you uh, smile. Right. Yeah. So let's let's dive a little bit into to kind of your, your own um, personal story here, uh, because you know, you've you've had two very significant, more than two, but two, I think, very very significant losses that that affect people. Um, and well, in saying this, let's get a little bit of backstory. Uh, first of all, like, wh- wh- where are you from, and and where where did you grow up, and how did you end up uh, where you're at? Okay, I I was born and raised in a very small town in California called Porterville, and okay. I still uh, own a company there that my dad traded our home for when I was thirteen. So okay. <laughs> the company wow, okay. was very successful. So <laughs> and I I own it now because both mom and dad are gone, and and yeah. I own it with my two nieces because my sister also died. Mm-hmm. So uh, growing up in a very small town gave me a different perspective on life than I would have had someplace else. And I noticed when I went away to college, I went away to San Diego state and that was huge (laughs) compared to anything that I'd been looking at. So I thought, okay, things aren't always the way they, they seemed to be for me in the past. And then I've, I've gone through a, a few different careers in my lifetime because I kept getting excited about something different or something new and <laughs> I went to the next shiny object and, and had a great life because of that. I got lots of experiences to do a lot of things and met really great people, uh, including my two husbands who died. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of... My husband, the first husband who died was Jacques, and he was a college professor and a bioethicist, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, fascinating. Absolutely is. a singer and actor. (laughs) Okay. So he he had a beautiful singing voice, loved to be in musicals and and loved to be in comedies, especially. Very, very good actor. So uh, we were both involved in theater a lot and had, had just a great life between the working on the uh, things that have to do with loss, with uh, especially with his specialty in ethics, and then all the fun that we had with all the theater that we did. So, and we were married for 22 years, and okay. it was a great relationship. And he, at our um, around our fifth wedding anniversary, he started not feeling great, and that that was the beginning of his health problems. In the last two years of his life, I actually stayed home with him. I, I didn't work outside the the home at, at that time because he had so many doctor's appointments, was in the hospital so much, um, and he, he really couldn't be by himself. So yeah. I, I went through that whole period with him. Which is incredible um and i think that's a testament to to really true genuine deep and lasting love that you're willing to you're willing to set aside um a lot of things for for that and for making the most of the opportunities you still had um if you're comfortable sharing you know um some part of what is what was health struggles that he was going through and kind of what it's what is it like uh, coming to the place where you know that there's like we all have a finite time on this earth, but we we all kind of have maybe this hope or this expectation that we're gonna we're gonna live into our advanced years, and I gather that wasn't the case for him. And what was it like kind of navigating that? It was interesting. He he was a lot older than I was, and okay. so I I kind of anticipated that that he would go before I did, just out of statistics. But Fair enough. We, yeah. Uh, he he was a positive, happy person. He loved to laugh. As a matter of fact, we had a a cockatoo at the time and we kept trying to teach it how to talk and it wouldn't talk, but it had laughed his laugh. I'd I'd go home and and he wouldn't be there, but I'd hear him laughing and think that he was there because it sounded just exactly (laughs) like him. He laughed that much. So he, he was a real happy person and chose to look at things positively. And the main class that he taught was the uh, living fully through facing dying. 
and that class was required for all the nursing students at that college. And so he would, his classes were full. Every once in a while, he'd get to teach something different, but there were so many nursing students that, that he had them all the time. So, and I actually uh, was a nurse at the time and took the class for continuing education units after okay. they got married. Yeah. So I know exactly what he taught. And uh, it was you know, how to, how to look at death, how to approach death, you know, positives and negatives, things to do, not to do, all that sort of thing. Really, really great class. So he knew things, you know, that, that just the, the ordinary person wouldn't have done all the research or been so involved in that sort of thing, but he was. And the thing about him was I, I realized right before he died that he didn't, hadn't accepted the fact that he was dying. He thought he was going to the doctor to get better to get well right to okay to normal and that that was kind of a, a shock to me but he had um congestive heart failure so he ended up with two different heart surgeries he had diabetes and he had uh renal failure so that he had to be on dialysis okay yeah so then, lots of stuff yeah yeah and you know, that, that kind of led into maybe a kind of a question that I have, because here here he's teaching about, um, well, really how to navigate surrounding death, especially for nurses who, who would be dealing with patients who are dying and how to maybe handle that graciously. Um, but he himself had sort of this moment, and maybe every one of us goes through this in our life where we're forced to confront our own mortality, where he, he has to come to terms with, I'm not just going to the doctor to get better. And uh, what was it like kind of watching him grapple with that? Well, I didn't have to watch him very long for that. Um, he wrote a textbook uh, on e its ethics, theory, and practice that's used at universities worldwide. And it, he had to keep it up to date because it first came out in 1975. Okay. So, uh, and every about three years, sometimes four years, they'd release a new edition to keep all of the examples fresh and it, make it make it relative or some people could relate to what was mm -hmm. going on now. And he he was overdue on his contract for the, the last edition that, that he got to do because it was so hard for him. His his hands would swell up and it made it very difficult for him to type. So he he would type the best he could and then I'd go back through and clean it all up so that I could right, figure yeah. out what he was trying to say because they were just miss miss keys you know it, it, it was a challenge so he ended on a, a friday morning finishing it up he was so excited it was the first time we got to to transmit the draft uh electronically to the publisher because before we'd always had to do all these copies <laughs> that would just uh, it, was, it was really neat to be able to do it electronically so we called his editor uh right after we submitted it to say we got it in <laughs> you know <I> didn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was gonna happen but we got it in and it was time for lunch so i fixed him lunch and um, we were getting ready to take him to dialysis and while he was sitting there at lunch he said am i gonna get better and it was at that moment that i realized that he was doing all this stuff because he thought he was going to get better having the surgeries having the dialysis having you know, all the goes along with diabetes um, and it, it really kind of shocked me but we also had a very honest relationship and all I could say was no yeah. it, he, he wasn't getting better it seemed like every every day every moment almost he was getting worse so he didn't really say anything after that, but I uh, helped him out to the car to go to dialysis. I opened the car door and he sat down on the edge of the seat and he looked at me and said an expletive that I probably shouldn't say here. <laughs> and that was it. He was gone. He just said it and then I, he was gone. Like literally so, passed, out, passed away in the seat of your car. Right there in the seat of the car and, he, he fell down in between the seat and the dashboard. I couldn't get him out. I couldn't do anything for him. And I kind of thought that happened too, because uh, I'm, I'm a lifesaver type of person. I've worked in the emergency room a lot. And the company that my dad bought was an ambulance company. So I've been dealing with ambulance calls for my whole life. So I, he was in a position that I, I couldn't help him. And I realized it, it was time and that I, I couldn't help him, but it, the most shocking thing to me was realizing that he didn't really 
believe that he was dying until that moment. Once he realized he wasn't going to get better, there's no reason for him to stay alive anymore. Would your interpretation of that be that he he relinquished the will to live at that point, recognizing that there wasn't a quality of life remaining for him? Or I think so. I think so, because it, it was hard. What he was going through was hard. And right, just physically and he, mentally exhausting yeah, and emotionally yeah, exhausting. Very exhausting. And he just, uh, yeah, he just said, okay, this is it. There's, there's no reason for me to continue torturing myself like this. Right. And uh, so it, it sounds like then you might have, I mean, I guess had some, at least some experience with, with death and with um, sickness mm-hmm. and, and, and watching people go through this. But is this, was this for you one of the, like the first time or one of the first times that you were with somebody in the moment that they passed away or? No, I, I've actually done that quite a few times in my lifetime fair enough uh but i guess that this one was uh, quite personal and close to you and uh what, what sort of ran through your mind at, at that time uh it was kind of a sense of relief because he had just he'd been suffering with <laughs> with all the things that were going on with him and the suffering was getting worse and worse and worse and i thought i'm so glad that he's not going to be struggling anymore yeah, he was trying his best to do his best, and that wasn't making any difference. And so, and, and I know you you write about grief, and um, this is something you're you're well versed in. But at, at this point in time, how how acquainted were you with grief? How did you handle your own grief here? Well, I I had dealt with a lot of grief through my lifetime uh, before him, and it was. Like I was with my mom when she died. Uh, I was with my aunt when she died. Um, uh, and then I was with various patients and acquaintances that, as they died. So I, I had had that experience a lot. And it was different every single time. It's different. Depends on the person. Depends on their beliefs. Depends on uh, if they were sick or if it was sudden. It, it's always different. So it's something that's very difficult to prepare for because you, you never know what it's going to be like or how, when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. So it was, it was different in that we had been uh, just together constantly for, for quite right. a while and, and really dealing with it. But we had, we really had said everything that we wanted to say to each other. I'm not sure he did that with everybody he knew, but I know that, that we were whole in our relationship between yeah. us, which made it, I can't say it made it easier, but it was okay. It, it felt like there was some closure there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so being kind of acquainted with grief, you said something interesting there. It's not really something that we can prepare for because, you know, part of the reason why I think this discussion is so important is grief for a lot of people is almost like an unknown until you're slapped in the face with a giant wave of it. So right. if, if, it, if it's not really something that we can prepare for, how, how do you navigate that? Well, what you do is take care of yourself. That's always the, the first thing that I say to anybody. I know that um, when Jacques died, I reacted in a certain way. And I thought, well, I did that then. But when I knew that that Ron was dying in the process of dying when his time came and I thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. And I did. So, you know, fair enough. Yeah. You can um, have, have all the plans in the world and you're not going to know until it happens. But the thing is, is to not judge yourself because anything that you do is okay. It's, it's your experience for that moment and it's okay. And and take care of yourself. Don't beat yourself up, because a lot of people do that. They they have the, this uh, bout of if onlys, I call it. Where they, right. If only I'd done this. If only you'd gone to the doctor when I told them to. If only you know. And and yeah. that doesn't help you at all. So if you start to do that, realize that's not helpful, and just release that. Don't do that. But but yeah. take the time that you need to to deal with it. That's another big problem that, that people have, especially if they haven't dealt with grief before, is that they think that they can just go on about their life as usual. And a lot of times employers expect you to go on about your life as usual um, yes. without having that time to take care of yourself. Yeah, which... 
that that would be a whole nother topic in terms of how sort of employers handle emotional and mental health and whatnot. Um, but so you're, you know, you go through the process of, of grieving here. And I think you, you hit on a couple of really important things. One being to, to take care of yourself and to, to show yourself compassion. In other words, not, not to judge whatever the choices are you make as you're trying to cope with this, because it is, it is a, a very deep and a very powerful emotional experience. And, we can't really predict how we're going to react. And in fact, if we try to control our reactions in a sense, maybe we're actually just suppressing what we're feeling or trying to avoid what we're feeling. Um, you know, like I, myself, I think I'm quite a cerebral individual. I, I think a lot about things. Um, and you know, I, I feel like my, my first instinct might be to try to think my way through it and sort of push the emotions down. But I, I wonder if that would be like a natural reaction, just trying to avoid the pain that we might be feeling. Is there, is there any way, I guess we can't really avoid the pain of grief, but how do you, how do you, um, I guess, survive the pain of grief and, and, and what is that really like? Well, in both cases for me, I was a- alone a lot after um, both when Jacques and when Ron died and being alone was not a great place to be. So I, I tried doing things like, watching movies on TV. I wasn't good at reading. I love to read. I, you know, have a degree in writing. I <laughs> yeah. really love re- reading, but I just, I couldn't focus enough on that. And and if I turn a movie on, on TV, then I didn't have to watch it, especially when, when I could find things that, that didn't have commercials because I, that, that was like an interrupter. Whenever the interrupter would happen, it would bring me back to reality. And that's not where I wanted to be right then. Right. Okay. When I finally got through feeling like that, um, especially after Ron died, I started writing, and I it's you know I'm a writer since I I wrote the book, but I have taught writing at the university level for over thirty years, and still do, and really love that. So I turned to writing, and tried to figure out different things that I could write. What is it that I would write that would be helpful to me? And I did quite a few different things. I, I did exercises. I made up exercises. I, I wrote uh, just what they call free writing or automatic writing or just whatever comes out of your pen is what comes out of your pen. And I yeah. did a lot of that. And the more I did of that, the, the better I felt, the more I felt like I was getting a kind of stable again if that makes sense and so i thought if this is helping me i'm sure it's going to help other people too but we had moved to maui that's where i live now um two years before ron died and we did that because he'd lived here a long time before i knew him and we'd been here visiting several times he still had friends here and he really loved it here and it's really quite peaceful and beautiful and different than any place else i've ever been so it made sense for him to want to be here for his last days so we just sold everything and, and moved over here. And so I didn't know a whole lot of people at that point. Uh, we, yep. we had made, made some friends, had old friends, but I didn't know really anybody who was uh, dealing with grief like I was. So, and I wanted to help people. So I, I put a notice on meetup <laughs> and told people, <laughs> you know, if, if you're grieving and you'd like a, to learn how to write to help you with that, then come on over to my house. And they did. And wow. we, we formed a really nice group and we, we wrote frequently and it really helped everybody and being with other people, especially people who we had something in common with, but we all had different kinds of grief, whether it was a yeah. child that had died, a husband that died, um, a marriage that was over, uh, a surgery that was life changing lots of different kinds of grief <clears throat> that we all were, were able to relate to each other and support each other, even though we didn't know each other outside of, of this group. Yeah. The, it, it, within grief, I think there's, for, first of all, I think we often connect grief in, in this part of the world to primarily death, the loss of death, mm-hmm. but there are other things that deserve uh, to, to give place to grief. You know, um, I, I lost a business, for example, that I'd put a lot of time and effort in, in, into, and it wasn't really, in one sense, uh, it wasn't really something that was in, in my control. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was a significant loss. So it's like the loss of a future that we thought that that held, um, as, you know, and things that were taken away. So 
you also talk about, I guess, uh, finding love after grief. And uh, th- I think this is also a really interesting one because those who have especially lost a loved one or one that they were in a long-term relationship with, this sense of, you, you mentioned like, will, will I ever love again? And maybe a, that people would feel a sense of guilt around um, somehow or a sense of betrayal. If I, if I go and I, you know, involved in another relationship, it's sort of betraying the memory of the person who's passed and so on. Um, how, do you, how do you help people work through this kind of thing? Or how would you suggest that people work through this? We're having a very big storm here right now, and oh, okay, kind of playing havoc with the uh, the uh, internet with the reception. So, but I'm back. Hopefully, I'll be able to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and someone just mentioned here uh, the time of your podcast is is profound. Uh, we just learned that my nephew passed away this morning. This has brought me a lot of oh, comfort. Thank you. Wow. You know. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for loss. And maybe this would be a good time to ask that question. When someone uh, shares they're grieving for something, how might uh, other people who, who hear of someone's loss, I don't think we, we often know what to do in that moment. How do we try to help someone support them, bring them comfort? What would you, what would you suggest? I suggest um, there's so many things not to say, and it's a good idea to look those things up and realize it so that when the situation does arrive, you're not struggling and and saying the like, Oh, well, you can always have another baby or you're young. You can get married again. Or you you wouldn't, you would be amazed at the things that people say that, that just aren't helpful at all. And one of them, uh, I'm not criticizing you, (laughs) but I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, I finally, it doesn't make me crazy anymore, but it used to because everybody said it and they say it as it, it came across to me as, as grieving as feeling obligated to recognize your loss, but they didn't want to talk about it. So they'll say it and then go right on to the next thing. Ah, yeah. Okay. And that that's tough because when, when they say something, it's like you, you want to you want to say something or you want to hear them yeah. say something kind and it it just doesn't happen so if you say something if you know the person well enough to know the person's name who died um then use that name um i can tell you one of the things that after mom died one of her friends told me you know i just loved how after all the years your mom and dad were married they always held hands when they were walking and that helped me more than anything else because it brought back a really pleasant memory. It reminded me of how much they really demonstrated their love to each other and everybody knew of, of their love and they shared that love uh, throughout the rest of their life. So when you can, you can find something kind, like with my husband, Jacques, they'd say something like, I loved his singing voice. I'm really going to miss that. I used to go any place I knew he was performing because I wanted to hear him sing. Or with, with Ron, uh, yeah. uh, they'll say something like, oh, he helped me so much with my business. I don't know that I could have uh, survived that business had he not been there for me. So when you, and none of those things have to do with death or dying. They have to do with, with living and uh, good, positive things about the person who, who passed. And I think without doing research to think, see all the things to say and not to say, if you just remember to whatever you say to be kind and, mm-hmm. and thoughtful and be in that moment with the person and not jumping off to the next, uh, or what you were trying to say before you felt like you had to say that. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the phrase, I'm sorry for your loss is a very common one that we, that we use, or maybe I don't know that we've been, could I say conditioned to use because it's the one that we commonly hear. Um, so maybe we could ask how, how might you build on something? And I think you've kind of, you kind of explained that maybe that th- that phrase by itself is incomplete in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, I just want to say right. that and get it out of the way or it's perfunctory. And what the person really needs is it's, it's okay maybe to hear that. I'm sorry for your loss. In other words, I feel pain in my heart because you're in pain. I think that's what we're trying mm-hmm. to express, but yeah. to not use that as a jumping off point to try to move away from it, but just to be present with them in that moment, you know, uh, I think it's really helpful. 
That's right. And and you can say it. I, I got to the point where I realized, you know, these people are doing the best they can. You know, they're trying to be kind. Uh, so I, I was able to to stop getting kind of uptight about it. And it was it was just a nitpicky thing that I had. But uh, I'm sorry for your losses become like, have a nice day. Or right. how are you? Because when people ask you how, how you are, they don't want to know. You know, that's yeah. just we're we're conditioned to say that. And so we say it. So if, if you say, I'm sorry for your loss, I know how much you've loved him. Right. Or I yeah. know how much you're going to miss him or, you know, things, things like that. So that you it it is a jumping off place to something else that but not the end of a conversation. And I wonder if there's I wonder if there's place for saying to, to the person who's grieving. You know, I, I, I don't have words. And just being honest about that. Sometimes I think we feel a sense of shame. I, I feel like I should help you. I feel like I should help your pain. Do something. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to say this phrase because that's what I've heard people say before. And could we just be honest in the moment and say, I, I don't even know what to say, but I'm just, I just want to be here with you in the moment. And if that can bring you some comfort, you know. That, that's perfect. It, it actually is a, is a perfect thing because sometimes you don't have words. Um, yeah. If if somebody is, oh, I know when a friend of mine had his, his nephew murdered just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <sighs> that, yeah. That it was an ordinary place doing something ordinary that anybody would do, but he just happened to be in the line of fire when somebody decided to, to uh, shoot his gun. What do you say to that? Yeah. So when when it's something that's so or or car accidents and when somebody dies in a car accident, whatever you say, just be kind with it. We we had a dear friend killed in a car accident actually on its way home from our house, and it was uh, it was pretty devastating. And when people would talk to us, they they would say something like, "I'm sorry for your loss." Was he drinking? <laughs> I thought, geez. <laughs> Don't judge right now, you know? It's yeah, that's gone. pretty callous. You can't yeah. change it. You can't fix it. But a lot of people said that because it was a car accident. And people just kind of assume that if there's a car accident, there's alcohol involved. And that's not necessarily so. I don't, I'm most of the time, I'm sure alcohol is not involved in car accidents. And I've been to a lot of them with the ambulance company. Right. And yeah. Yes. Yes. I've seen them with alcohol, but it's not a general rule. Yeah. And so I think, again, you, you've really reiterated or reinforced the important points. And, and I would encourage people to just as best as possible, try to to be present even in that discomfort, because whatever discomfort you're feeling, the grieving person is feeling much more. And, you know, I might say like in, in my work as a coach, very often I hear things, uh, you know, I say that I'm a weight loss coach, but really that's the cover story, right? The truth is there's a lot more to the human experience that leads people to the place where they're carrying around extra weight. And it has nothing to do with not knowing what to eat or not knowing how to how to be active, right? There's so much more in the picture. And I hear things um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I can create the space where my clients feel comfortable enough sharing the truth about their situation or what they're struggling with. But I hear things that break my heart. And, and there's, you know, I can't do anything in one sense to, to fix what has happened to them in their past. And so I think that has taught me how to be present with someone in a moment where they're just, they're just sharing something. They don't need me to fix it. They need to be heard and to be validated. And it helps us to understand why they do what they do. And, and really, I try to hold space uh, and, and really bring compassion into the equation. It's one of my, I, I consider compassion along with integrity to be my two most important core values whenever I interact with people. Just understanding that, that all of these things, there's a reason why we do them. And there's a reason why we might act in a way that goes against our best sort of self-interest. And so I'd, I'd like to, uh, because I don't want to lose track of the time here, I'd like to also talk a little bit about, you mentioned finding, you know, you, you have had a second husband here. Mm -hmm. how, how do you go from uh, grieving the loss of one husband to establishing another relationship? And is there some challenges connected to like did, did this other did Ron your other your, your second husband had he previously been in a relationship or or how how did that play out? That was um, very interesting because my my knee jerk reaction after Jacques died was well I I had this wonderful marriage for twenty two years and I'm done you know <laughs> I, I had no intention of getting married to anybody else or, or <clears throat> even going out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. 
And I think that's that's quite a natural response to have. It is. And a, a couple of years after Ron died, I ran into somebody at the university one day, one of my colleagues, and she said, so, are you dating? I said, no. <laughs> so anyway, she, she said it was time for me to be dating, and, and I thought she was a little bit crazy. But she kept, every time I saw her, she'd go, you need to go on Match.com. And <laughs> No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But finally, she said it so many times. I thought there's a reason that she's doing this. And so I thought, okay, I know to go on, on one of those dating sites, you need to write a profile. So I wrote a, a, my profile. And I also wrote a list of everything that anybody that I would even consider talking to had to have all these qualities. And it was a long list. And I think yeah. that solves the problem because nobody's going to get through this list. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went on, I put my profile on, I started looking at the people that were available there to me. And I said, well, I was right. There's nobody here. This isn't going to work. And, and then just before I shut it off, Ron's picture popped up and I thought, oh, <laughs> so I looked at his profile and started checking things off the list. And he was every single item on the list. So we, went on with the conversation. We ended up two days later going out to dinner, which you're not supposed to do when you're first starting on social media things. Yes, uh, but yeah. we did, and we were together ever since then. Never went back. The situation, though, was that I thought we were just dating and enjoying each other's company. And I, I realized after a while that he he wanted to get married and one day he was talking we were someplace and he was talking to somebody mentioned my ex-husband and i said uh wait a minute i don't have an ex-husband i had a husband who died but i don't have an ex-husband and he had ex-wives but they nobody died so he he hadn't really related to that and he was kind of surprised that i said that because he didn't mean any harm by it but it it suddenly dawned on him finally why i wasn't ready to get married because I never felt unmarried to Jacques. Okay. I know they usually say till death do you part in traditional. We did our own vows. So I'm not sure that we said that in our, our vows when Jacques and I got married. I, I'm pretty sure we didn't, but that's, that's the feeling, the, the common assumption in society. Um, but we, we didn't get divorced. We didn't do anything to end our relationship or end our marriage. And we were very much together, especially at the end. So that's when I realized I had to deal with that sort of thing. And, and fortunately, Ron was patient about it. And, and we worked our way through that and eventually got to the point where I said yes, when uh, <laughs> we got married in kind of a strange way. But <laughs> cause yeah, yeah. We, we on uh, the day after Christmas in 2010, I was looking at the calendar. And I said, you know what? New Year's Day, it's one, 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 one. Wouldn't that be a cool day to get married? And he said, yes, I'll make all the arrangements. So, <laughs> so we did. <laughs> uh, We've been together like four years, so it wasn't like a surprise. Um, right, yeah. It, it was It was time, and I was, I was ready at that point. But he was patient with me through this process of, of being okay with that. And I've had people say to me, because I, I say I'm, I'm, I'll carry my two husbands in my heart forever till I die at least. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, how can you love two people at the same time? And it's an interesting question. But what I say to them is how many children do you have? Yeah. Because you don't just love one of your children. You know, you, you yeah. love all the children that you have and you can love all the husbands that you have. It's okay. Yeah. That's and how many how many years did you and Ron get to enjoy together after being married? Ten years. Ten, we had ten yeah. years together. Okay. Yeah, and then you know, um, you talk about I believe in, in your writing. There's five stages to grief. Do I have that correct? Uh, I don't believe that. But or you don't, you don't believe that. People say that. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. Because. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the book on living and dying in the early 70s. And in that, she was talking to people about how to die. And she had five stages to dying, the process of dying. 
Okay. And at that point, nobody had done anything about stages for grief and people wanted something to hang on to. We didn't, there wasn't instruction out there. Everybody did it kind of privately. Society as a whole was at a loss for how to deal with grief. And so they kind of adopted those five stages of dying and they don't necessarily apply to grief. Okay. Uh, Some of them do. Uh, but but they don't necessarily do. And when, when I was researching for my book, I found everything from, well, there's only three stages of grief and to there's 11 stages of grief and you have to go through them all in this order. So <laughs> it's, it's a, just the philosophy of whoever you happen to be talking about when it comes to stages. And my, my belief is feel what you feel when you feel it and whatever it is, is okay. I like that. That seems much more human. Mm-hmm rather than sort of trying to check things off on a checklist, which seems very sort of cerebral and divorced from emotion, if I could use that term. Mm -hmm. And uh, because everyone's experience of grief is going to be unique. And so, uh, you know, maybe it would be fair to say that you are an expert on grief, uh, both by, by human experience and by study. Um, Is, are there times that you still feel grief? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, every once in a while, I'll hear a song that Jacques sang, or somebody will say something that was something that Ron used to say, or and uh, you know, I, it'll bring a tear and catch my breath, uh, and and that happens. And some sometimes it lasts for a little while, and and that's perfectly normal too. Because as I said, I still love them both, and when there's something that, that really reminds me deeply of them, uh, it, I will remember that they're not here and that's, that happens. And, it, and as I said, it's okay. So, um, yeah, it, it's human. It's, it's what people do. And as long as I don't stay in that moment, some people get stuck and they get into something called complicated grief because they just can't deal with things. They can't move forward. They they can't do anything but think about what happened. And that happens especially in cases where it's been a death by suicide or when it's a, a sudden loss like a car accident. Those those kinds of things people can easily get stuck in. And they just yeah. need that much more love and support. Yeah, and if we could just touch briefly on you know, because they're, they're probably that's probably a whole you know podcast conversation in and of itself, mm-hmm. really on on, on complex or uh, grief. But in in short, is there something that someone, a support person, can do, or if someone recognizes has a self awareness to recognize I'm, I'm in this situation, is there a step or step someone can, can take to help themselves or to support someone in that experience? If you realize <clears throat> that what you're doing is making it so that you you're not functioning in in life very well um sometimes people lose their jobs because they they cry at their desk all the time um and there's no understanding for that in the workplace uh if if you you are having a challenge with living if you're thinking about self-harm or anything like that if you notice that in somebody then address it with them say you know can can I help you find a grief counselor to go to, or I would be happy to drive you, or I would be happy to sit here and hold your hand and let you say whatever you want to, or you don't have to talk. I'll just sit here and hold your hand. And a lot of times that's what they, they really need, especially people who are left alone in wherever they're living. That's, that's really hard. If you've got people around, it's different, but when you, you just are by yourself, that's especially challenging. Yeah, that can really uh, bring someone into a, a deep and a dark place. Is there, and I think you may, might have already addressed this in a roundabout way, but is there really a time limit to grief? Is there a time where you won't feel grief from, from a, a past loss? No. It, grief is, it, it doesn't end. People ask, how, how long is this going to last? Or they'll say, aren't you over that yet? That's, that's another one that you shouldn't say. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there, there really isn't a time limit because it affects you in different ways. And the person who's gone is always gone. They're not coming back. And so it's not surprising. You know, there's sometimes 
I, I wish my mom could see something or I wish my dad could take us all out for ice cream because that was his favorite thing to do. You know, I'll, I'll have ice cream and think of dad. Every yeah. time I eat ice cream, I think of dad. And and that's okay. It's it's just uh, part of a love that that lasts forever. I was going to say, would would you say that it's possible then to through grief to also um, tap into a sense of gratitude for, for what was brought into your life by their presence. Absolutely. And I have, I'm a big gratitude advocate. It, it changed my life after Jacques died because I, I sat probably for six months without doing much of anything at all. And the, the university asked me to come back and teach. I hadn't been there in a while, but they, they realized that I was not working. And so they called me and said, please come back. And so I'd go to, to teach and then I'd come back home and I would just sit. I didn't eat a lot, hardly anything, lost a lot of weight. Uh, I wasn't watching TV or reading or anything. I just, just couldn't do anything. And I had a, a friend who was, uh, he was my trainer, actually, was concerned about me. And he mentioned gratitude. And I didn't say it to him, but I thought, what do I have to be grateful for? My husband died, you know. Yeah. But then another friend suggested writing down things I was grateful for. And, I, you know, the, when you start hearing things from different angles, from different people in different situations, I thought, I'm probably supposed to be paying attention to this. So I thought I'll try. And I started writing a list of things that I was grateful for and why I was grateful for them. And I, I did it one evening. And when I stopped writing, I immediately felt better. I wasn't, you know, like healed or anything. On, sure, on the spot, yeah. But I felt better. And I thought, well, I'm going to keep doing this. And so I, I did. And it got to be a real habit with me. I even got a little journal to carry in my purse so that I could write things down when I was standing in line at the bank. You know? Right. Yeah. It, it, I was, I didn't want to forget any of my gratitude when I think of what I was grateful for. And the more I realized that I had a whole lot more in life to be grateful for than to be glum about it really brightened my life and it really changed it. And I can honestly say I'm happier now than I've ever been in my whole life. Which, Which is a beautiful is thing surprising. to say. Yeah. Especially <laughs> really after yeah. Yeah, witnessing and, and experiencing significant loss in your life. And you know, very often when I get on a on a call with a client, I'll just ask them what's one thing you're grateful for today? And the number of people that struggle with that question, I don't want to say it surprises me, but it kind of I, I feel a twinge of sadness that we struggle with this question because it's almost like we, we have to practice this act of gratitude. And yet it's the thing that can rewire our brain to be happier than we presently are. And it doesn't really cost us anything taking a moment to reflect on what do we have to be grateful for today? Is there a way to approach this where it doesn't just feel like some sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of fluffy, airy fairy, new age thing where gratitude is sort of tangible and, and meaningful? I, I think so, and I I always do it with uh, I, I do it with people. I'll say, like you say, when you're on a call with somebody, you ask them if if it becomes normal to be doing that sort of thing to say that <clears throat> instead of saying how are you uh, or have a nice day, say what are you grateful for today. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, in in Los Angeles, there's a, a restaurant called the Gratitude Cafe. And the, the first thing they do when the server comes to the table, they say, I'm grateful for this today, whatever it is. What are you grateful for? And I, the first time I went there, I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to come back. You know, <laughs> it just yeah. felt good to have that, that kind of interaction. So if, if you make it a human for yourself, then it becomes human and normal and expected for other people so that it's not something off the wall. It's just something uh, with thinking positively. And I wonder if as human beings, because we live in this digitally connected world that at times we, we become disconnected from our, our, like our true humanity. And we, as we talked about earlier with the phrase, I'm sorry for your loss and the use of that. And really could we say the use of perfunctory phrases to avoid the discomfort of truly feeling, you know, uh, how are you? I'm fine. Well, that's not true. And so I, I really try to be thoughtful. I mean, we used to joke that fine was like feeling insecure, neurotic and emotional. Um, we, you know, so when I ask somebody that question, or I try 
you know, try as best as I can. If I'm going to ask that question, I want to mean it and be prepared for their answer and be prepared to. But I think why we avoid it is because we're hiding from the discomfort that might come our way if we hear about someone's pain or discomfort that they're experiencing in life. And so I think I actually love the idea of approaching almost every conversation with what are you grateful for? Because we immediately, instead of turning our, because when we ask, how are you doing? I think our minds first go to what's the most negative thing that I'm experiencing right now. And then I don't want to make the other person uncomfortable. So I'm not going to say that. So I'm just going to say I'm fine to avoid making them uncomfortable. So we could potentially change our interactions by opening the door to, you know, what's one thing that made you smile today? That's right. I I think when people do ask a question, like you said, they're looking for the negative. You know, it's juicy. You you watch on on TV or on movies. You look for the the negative stuff, the the shootings, the, the horrible things that go on. You watch the news because you keep hearing horrible things after horrible things. You, you're not hearing positive things on the news. We're we're so geared to not be thinking positively. And if we can, every, every interaction that you have, the more positive you can be. The more positive, more positivity you'll have in coming back to you too. Because people say, oh, it's okay. I, I can smile and it's okay. Then I'm not going to be judged for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Emily, it's, it's been such a pleasure. I'm really grateful for your willingness to share today. Um, I love that you've made this really in a sense, your life's work to try to help mm-hmm. other people and positively impact them as they go through the the process of grief. And so really to, to kind of tie things together. I know this is a big topic, but I'd love it if you could share some words of wisdom that maybe in a nutshell, that somebody could take away from this, if uh, that would just take them one step closer to being able to navigate grief in a healthy way. I can tell you that the most important thing that I, I learned from Ron and we did actively all the time was to live in the moment. And I know that sounds kind of new agey, but it's true because all we have is right now. We, we can't go back to yesterday. We can't go forward till tomorrow. So in this moment, I can smile. In this moment, I can breathe. In this moment, I'm well. In this moment, I'm happy. And if you can get to the point where you're living in the moment and realize that right now I'm good, then you, you can learn to stay in that moment. And that will help your whole approach to everything about life. I love that. And I, I, I think, you know, in this moment, I have a young son. He's eight, eight, eight months going on nine months old and just witnessing how rapidly he's changing. And so every day I try to think of using, you know, four of my five senses when I'm with him. You know, what what does his hair smell like? What does his skin feel like? What do I feel in his presence? You know, uh, how heavy does he feel in my arms and things like that? So just really tapping into my my senses and that really helps me to become present in that moment. So I love that, just um, choosing to be choosing to be present in the moment. I think what you've done here and what you shared is really taken what could be seen as sort of an intangible, fluffy, new age concept. And you've really grounded it in reality here. And so I really appreciate that. So, you know, thank you so much for for being with us. And thank you for sharing so honestly from the heart. I much I appreciate that. I know my listeners do as well. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. All right. Take care. We'll chat again soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, So keep moving forward. Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.